So if you look at financial services and fintech, it tends to be about three to five years ahead of what's happened in real estate. And while they are not one for one sort of ability to transfer from one to the other, you can borrow pretty heavily. And so we'll look at um, what's happening in the financial services domain a couple of years ago and be able to port that over. It often is going to hit the residential side of the prop tech market before it hits the commercial side. But you can kind of look fintech to resi prop tech to commercial prop tech um, and then eventually international. And uh, and you can draw some some pretty close correlations. Hey, Housing News listeners, this is Clayton Collins, CEO of HW Media, and we're back for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. Today, our guest is Zach Schwartzman, general partner of Metaprop. This is a really exciting episode because Zach has more knowledge about the prop tech space than almost anyone I have ever had a conversation with. Metaprop is looking at close to 200 potential investments each month. That level of transaction analysis and overview, that number of conversations with founders and experts just garners an incredible insight to the trends that are developing across the prop tech space. In this episode, we dive deep into some of the the theses that Metaprop is building their investment strategy around, around title and commercial appraisal, uh, the single family rental property management market, zoning, building, mortgage tech. There's some really cool insights in this conversation. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, folks, we are back for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. This is Clayton Collins, CEO of HW Media, and I'm thrilled to welcome Zach Schwartzman, general partner at Metaprop, to the podcast today. Zach, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Clayton. So today we're going to talk about prop tech, alternative housing finance models, other Metaprop insights. I think this conversation will be pretty deep if anybody has taken the time to check out Metaprop's website on their portfolio page. There is a ridiculously robust list of companies that, that Metaprop has invested in and supports as in their growth cycle. Um, companies like Hiarc and Truehold, Payfully, Milo, which Housing Wire covered last week with uh, a new Bitcoin mortgage product, Homelister, Branch, Morty, who we've been following for years, Spruce, the, the list goes goes deeper and deeper. I won't read them all to you, but I'm sure Zach will get deeper into some of these companies as we talk today. Um, but Zach, I, I want to start off. So at HW Media, we've recently focused our publication, FinLedger, exclusively in on the on the prop tech vertical. We, we started covering everything in fintech and realized that that was a ridiculously robust coverage area. And we continue to see more and more innovation and in, uh great coverage needs to happen in prop tech. Um, so we talk about what's our definition of prop tech. And I think we have a pretty clear view, but you have, you're building a firm exclusively focused on investing in prop tech companies. So I'd love to hear how you define the space. Um, sure. I'm happy to take a, a crack at it. Um, you know, there is no, uh, as of yet, uh, Oxford English dictionary definition of, of prop tech. So everybody slices it a slightly different way. Um, it's one of the reasons that if you look at, you know, dollar totals going into the space, some funding levels and things like that. A lot of different publications will come out with slightly different stats. Everyone draws the box a little bit differently. Um, for us at Metaprop, you know, we take a very broad view. For us, 
Um, you know, we look at our investment scope within PropTech almost like a matrix laid out along two axes. And on one is going to be the different types of properties that uh, compose the full spectrum in real estate. So we do a lot in single family homes, a lot of multifamily, uh, office, retail, hospitality, you name it, but also the whole long tail, industrial, warehousing and logistics, student housing, senior housing, you name it. Um, and the other, uh, the other axis is going to be uh, the value chain functionally in real estate. So we break down every single function or task that a real estate professional performs through the entire life of an asset from dirt to, to, to disposition. And we are looking for tech that's going to help those firms do their jobs better, faster, cheaper, and tech that's going to more fundamentally rethink the way um, that those professionals do their jobs. And so if you lay that all out in a big grid, uh, that's how we view the prop tech space. Um, and I think the other X factor to it is, you know, it uh, was once an entirely North American affair uh, for the most part. It's really where the epicenter of commercializable technology is. But the nature of, of real estate is it's tied to different geographies. It's an increasingly global game. This might vary by asset class, but when you you think about the the dirt to disposition axis, how do you how does that relate to the adoption or innovation curve? Like, do you see more innovation happening kind of in in the middle, uh, or is it like, are you actually is the curve begin at dirt and you're seeing it move through to to disposition? Like, where are we seeing the evolution of innovation and adoption and um, and actual value creation happen on that curve? Uh, well, I wish it was that linear. Honestly, <laughs> as an investor, uh, I would make our jobs uh, that that much that much simpler. Um, I mean, the truth is, it, it's really everywhere. Um, you know, there is really not a job category or function uh, or task within the broad span of real estate these days that does not have uh, some degree of innovation uh, that's being applied to it. And sometimes that's, you know, a specific piece of software, we would call them vertical SaaS usually that are coming out for professionals across uh, different job categories in real estate. Um, so think mortgage loan officers and servicers, um, think um uh, environmental surveyors, civil engineers, obviously residential brokers, title agents, things like that. And sometimes they are um, really tech-enabled uh, services um, or providers of um, a similar type of uh, function that an incumbent would have provided, right? And so they represent more of a direct challenge. But um, you know, this is this is really broad-based right now. It's it's a little bit of everywhere. So without a linear relationship and in dirt to disposition, which doesn't surprise me, it makes perfect sense. How, how does that influence your investment strategy? Like where, how do you determine where, where you're going to spend time? Real estate's a, you know, a, a, a massive vertical and we've already talked through the the different asset categories. How do you decide where you're going to spend time and which opportunities are worth investing time and capital into? Um, yeah, I, it's a great question. It's a million dollar question. Um, you know, for us, I'd say at any given time, we're probably operating against somewhere between four to six proactive theses, right? These are areas that we anticipate we're going to see, um, uh, more commercializable innovation activity. And there's a difference, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of interesting technology being built and, and innovation activity, but only a subset of it, uh, looks like it's going to be. Uh, have a really big business built behind it. Um, and so we have operated against those um, those different theses and areas um, like uh, title insurance, um, like commercial appraisal, uh, like um, site surveying, 
Um, we have been looking for more to do and have begun to do more in senior housing, uh, which is an area that we felt has been um, under-innovated in. And there's a lot of um, uh, kind of latent opportunity lurking. Um, and then we're starting to look now um, at, uh, at entitlement and zoning as another area uh, that has some opportunity within it. Um, but then a lot of what we do is, is a factor of what we're seeing in the market. One of the strategies that we've used for years is looking at what's happened in the broader financial technology and fintech space and looking for applications of similar trend lines within the real estate and property market. So if you look at uh, financial services and fintech, it tends to be about three to five years ahead of what's happened in real estate. And while they are not one for one um, sort of ability to transfer from one to the other, you can borrow pretty heavily. And so we'll look at um, what's happening in the financial services domain a couple of years ago and be able to port that over. It often is going to hit the residential side of the prop tech market before it hits the commercial side. But you can kind of look fintech to resi prop tech to commercial prop tech um, and then eventually international. And uh, and you can draw some some pretty close correlations. Can, can you share any examples of those correlations? I'm I, This is a, a fascinating idea that there's leading indicators coming from the, the broader fintech sector. But I'm, as you speak through it, I'm having trouble grasping onto what some of those examples might, might look like. Sure. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, for instance, we saw um, uh, automated valuation models start to come out, importing um, yep. over some of the early concepts you'd seen in fintech, but really delivering them into the residential side of the prop tech space. Um, and you started to see companies, the house canaries of the world and folks like that who would come out uh, and say, I can, from a desktop, approximate the value of a home pretty precisely. Um, we thought there was no reason that was not going to be happening in short order on the commercial side of things. But like um, with many, many different types of technologies, the application of commercial can be a bit hairier. You're dealing with more complex assets generally with more individual um, uh uh, sort of broader set of individual attributes. And um, and so we were very early investors uh, with the team at a company called Bowery Valuation. Uh, it's gone on to do very well. Um, we recently raised uh, some capital from Goldman Sachs and more of a growth round. We were very early days. They actually came through our accelerator program way back when. Um, so we were able to, to help do that. More recently, uh, um, we... Uh, we're early pre-seed investors in a company called Staircase um, that is basically an API and abstraction layer on top of a lot of core mortgage functionality, a lot of the processes and information that would be embedded inside the GSEs of Fannie and Freddie. Um, we watched what had happened with Plaid in financial services when they were able to go in and create a developer-friendly abstraction layer um, on top of a lot of the core banking systems. And we thought it was only a matter of time before you know, the next direct-to-consumer uh, digitally native mortgage company was not going to have to build all their core tech directly, but would be able to leverage a set of APIs, in this case, APIs um, proffered by Staircase, uh, to be able to build a lot of that. So we were able to port from one to the other, and we love to do that. Staircase is a really interesting example. One of the things that we've talked about a lot at Housing Wire is the, the, tr- the transition that has happened in the last five to 10 years with with fintech and prop tech companies. And for a long time, the concern with fintech, the concern with prop tech was that innovation would be um, 
disruptive. And like the goal of the, the, the companies coming into the space, the capital coming into the space was to d- displace steel market share from, from the incumbents. And one of the things that we kind of increasingly see playing out, and we just, we just reviewed our tech 100 nominations in the last couple of weeks and saw barely any nominations for folks that were focused on disruption, but a lot of people focused on, um, that, that B2B enterprise um, software services and solutions to enable incumbents to be more efficient, um, to operate at lower cost structures, uh, and, and ultimately help the incumbents steal market share from, from their competitors who are not as quick to adopt. Is that theme something that, that you think is playing out in your, in your look at the market, specifically with that like plaid to staircase example? It is. Um you know, I'd share an observation, which is, which is, if you look at the earlier days of PropTech, one of the things that you saw was there was um, a wave of companies that came out that were heavily venture funded. It was increasingly easy to raise venture dollars. Um, and you had big funding rounds going to companies that were direct challengers to incumbents, right? So the classic example would be WeWork or shared, shared office space, flex office space. Um, you get companies like an open door that are coming out and competing um, at, uh, at one end of the resi brokerage market. Um, you uh, get the Kateros, companies like this that came out of construction. Some of those companies wound up working out. Several of them notably did not um, in pretty high profile ways. But what they did was for really the first time, they mounted a direct challenge with some technology and certainly a lot of tech veneer on top of them and outside growth capital fueling them to to make a run at incumbent real estate players. And one of the effects of that is the incumbents in the real estate turned often through partnership with folks like Metaprop and our peers um, to prop tech as a toolkit of sorts that they were interested in reaching into to enhance their value prop to their consumer um, and modernize their offering. Um, And that has led to or helped fuel the growth of a lot of the companies that are not disruptors, they're more enablers um, and modernizers for traditional incumbents to partner with. And so we've we've seen a whole lot of that on the back. Do you think we're seeing... We're seeing the future right now where enablers are the the focus of, of prop tech innovation, or do you think there could potentially, we could just be at a place in the curve where we went from like this focus on challenger to this focus on enabler, but as technology and access to capital hits a different market, becomes a few years down the road, 10 years down the road, I don't know, but we come back to a place where there's, uh, we're back in more of a challenger market and uh, the enablers are, are no longer the, the focus of innovation? Um, potentially. I think some of what we're seeing right now is, um, is a bit of a rationalization in the public markets. You know, last year we had 18 IPOs in the PropTech space, right? You, I think that probably doubles the number of public companies, if not more than doubles the number of public companies in the PropTech space. Um, those companies are of many different formats, right? It used to be that generally you were talking about, um, you know, core property management systems and real estate data companies and the original portals and marketing sites as the publicly traded 
um, index in prop tech. Now you have a lot of different types of companies and you've seen um, a lot of fluctuation in the multiples that those companies trade at since they debuted. And some of that is looking at the underlying business model and saying, look, if you're a tech-enabled real estate company, you're probably not going to trade at a SaaS multiple. doesn't make sense. We've held that view for a very long time internally. Uh, it hasn't always been reflected in the market. Um, but I think what you're seeing now is a bit of a, a pullback in investor appetite to value more of the challenger companies if they have a profile to their business that does not mirror a software profile as software companies. And so as that happens, those multiples depress relative to their software peers, you're seeing increased excitement around more of the enabling software uh, to serve the industry to pull back from some of the more direct competitors. There's also that same market realization happening with the incumbents. I mean, we've seen uh, mortgage finance companies like um, like Rocket, uh, real estate brokerage companies like Compass, who we, the S1s very clearly tried to position the companies as technology or, or fintech companies. And there might be a very high degree of technology adoption or, um, or even proprietary development of enablement tools, but the market is certainly not sending the message that it sees these real estate brokerage and mortgage finance companies as actual fintechs from a multiple perspective. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I'm not going to tell you that at this very point in time that everything is completely rationally valued in the public markets right now. But um, I think that directionally, you know, directionally, that that makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. Um, and I think you're seeing the industry um, mature in front of your eyes. Um, it will probably continue to evolve substantially, but at a high level, that makes a lot of sense. So earlier you talked about uh, your accelerator program. I'd love to hear more about your your overall Metaprop deal sourcing strategy. Like where where are the companies coming from that you uh, you get exposure to and, and choose to invest in? And uh, is, is it all accelerator? The other parts to the other secrets in the sauce? All over. Um, so we see just for perspective, we see about two hundred new deals a month. So we're reviewing over two thousand uh, per year. At this point, we've invested in about 110, a little north of that, companies in the prop tech space uh, across our family of funds that date back to 2015. And um, we were investing as individuals uh, dating back to 2010 in the space. Um, so that's that's kind of what our what our book looks like. Um, at this point, deals come from from all over. I mean, when we really started doing this, we were some of the only folks out there. Um, and that accelerator program you referenced, which we run in partnership with Columbia University, that um, was really our original business before we were ever formally investing. And one of the reasons that we started that business was if you think back to that time, um, 2015 in this industry, there was so little activity that we wanted to provide an ecosystem building uh, set of activities that would bring together uh, the best prop tech entrepreneurs, the folks in real estate who um, were kind of in on the joke um, and represented the buyer and partner base, and then eventually capital, um, first outside capital and then our own. And we realized that there was so little connectivity happening between those different parties. And when folks did connect, they tended to speak pretty different languages. Um, you know, a, 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 you know, a Ruby developer was going to speak a very different language than uh, a real estate developer. 
And so we wanted to be that connective yeah. tissue in the middle. We maintain a very large public profile and a lot of uh, ecosystem presence, conference space, media, what have you. Um, but the core of what we do every day is uh, pure play investing in concert with a group of LPs who at this point represent about 20 billion square feet worth of diversified real estate holdings all over the globe um, and are integral to helping us do what we do. So you, you, that, that number you just mentioned with your LPs, usually people measure their LPs in uh, AUM, not, not square feet. So is, uh, is being a real estate owner operator a qualifier to being a, a Metaprop LP or what, am, I, am I hearing you the right way there? It's not a qualifier. It is the most visible component of our LP base from a public image standpoint. But if you, if you think about it, you know, we have access to a broad range of the marquee customer set in the global real estate community on one hand, and we see week over week about 85, 90% of the investable prop tech universe on, um, on the other side. And so we are able to take the learnings from each side um, and um, uh, refine our filter and then also have a really distinct value prop to any would-be portfolio investee um, on why they'd want to do business with us because particularly early in life, we're going to be able to develop conviction around their idea uh, sooner than the average bear. And then we're going to be able to help connect them to what could be some of their early and most influential customers and partners. So uh, zooming in on the the actual, the 200 companies that you're hearing from each month, what are some of the characteristics that you're looking for in, in entrepreneurs, business plans, product dev to date? Like, what are you looking for on, uh, I, I don't, what's, what's your filter? Are you going down from 200 to, to two or what, how many, how many times do you point the trigger each month? And, and then how do you, it's pretty austere at the beginning, yeah. the, the first, the first cut is the deepest. Um, but you know, it's, we'll, we'll do about a, a deal or two a okay. month is our regular cadence. Um, so, you know, you think about that, it's, it's, yeah. you know, 1% or less of what's coming in the top. Um, you know, define uh, uh, common characteristics. Um, there's generally a level of insight about a trend that's happening in the real estate industry or in the um, technology community that is applicable to real estate uh, that you're, uh, speaks to where the industry is really heading as opposed to where it is. You know, as PropTechs become more popular, you know, the number of so products, not companies, the number of um, point solutions is proliferated. And so you want to find um, an entrepreneur or set of entrepreneurs who can really articulate where they see the industry going and why there's new white space opening up ahead of them that um, the rest of the industry might not be seeing yet. And that the amount of white space to be captured is large enough to really build a um, big sustainable company. Um, so that's sort of on your idea and, and your market that you're going against. Um, and then one of the evolutions that we've seen in the prop tech space, it used to be that we had to do a lot of team assembly. You were generally finding folks who had either a real estate background or a tech and startups background, rarely the two together in the same human. Um, and now we have the privilege of being able to back, yes, repeat founders who have started and exited companies successfully, but also the lieutenant ranks from some of the companies uh, that have had some success, folks who were functional leads, uh, often on the technical side, sometimes on the BD or, or other side, um, at some high-profile tech companies have seen the movie before and are ready to start their own company. Um, and I think, you know, to be candid, some of the challenge is you want to you take advantage of that very rich talent pool 
um, but also not close yourself off on what has been a defining characteristic for Metaprop over the years, which is giving folks an on-ramp into entrepreneurship and making sure the door is, is open for folks who don't don't fit that. We've started this three times over uh, before. So we'll use, maybe we can use staircase as an example here. And since it kind of fits in our, our, our mortgage lane, if you're helping a founder build out a, a talent base, whether that's dev sales, marketing product around a business like staircase, where are you looking? Are you going through traditional recruiting channels and looking at the other technology companies and mortgage going straight to mortgage lenders for folks that were working in a proprietary IT team hitting the Columbia network? Maybe, maybe it's all the above, but tell me a little bit more about how that strategy comes together to help an entrepreneur building a mortgage tech company, assemble the right team of lieutenants around them. That's a great question. Um, yeah, a little bit, of all of the above actually hit on a couple of them. So it, it um, uh, my partner, Zach Aarons, and I had actually known each other. We were classmates at Columbia. The founder and CEO of uh, Staircase, a gentleman, and Adam Kalamchi, was a classmate of ours while we were all in school together. So we'd known each other for quite some time. Um, he previously had worked in the venture community in New York. Um, and when he approached us with this idea, we helped workshop it with him in the very, very early days, although this was really his, uh, uh, you know, this is, this is him at the wheel, not us. Uh, but help put a little bit of structure around it, certainly some encouragement. And then uh, together with um, our close friends at, at RRE Ventures in New York, uh, we're pre-seed capital around the company. They've since built a, a very nice supporting cast. Um, at the time, Adam was a solo entrepreneur, um, really starting the company himself and wound up as co-founder. Uh, Sufi had um, sold a company, previously a mortgage technology company, to, uh, to Black Knight. And um, that was the background of a gentleman who wound up becoming the co-founder and uh, technical lead for the business. Interesting. Do you remember the business that was sold to Black Knight? And that's not Heavy Water. Heavy Water. That was the name. Heavy Water. Okay. Heavy Water. All right. We'll check that one out. Um, so, in a previous conversation, you and I talked about some of the the, the hotter theses and markets in the prop tech world right now. We talked a little about the institutionalization of the the single family rental market. Uh, this is a market that I think if we were having this conversation four or five years ago. I would have said SFR was a, uh, was a disposition play coming out of the financial crisis and uh, the, the market would, would never fully mature into what it seems to be maturing into today. Um, but Hey, with time, things change. Uh, t- tell me more about your view of the SFR market and where the investable opportunities and, and needs for innovation. Sure. Um, yeah. All that's old is new again. You know, sometimes it's interesting. You were asking before about trend lines and where do things, where do things come from in the prop tech space? Um, you know, sometimes we do, there, there's a whole raft of long tail professional categories that have very little in the way of modern technology uh, for their professionals to use. And so we, you know, can go down the line and back, you know, uh, purpose-built technology for civil engineers to do site survey. Sure. Um, we can do that, uh, you know, um, almost endlessly. But sometimes uh, what we're doing is looking at really big, powerful trends that are um, sweeping through the real estate um, real estate market and provide um, a tremendous amount of opportunity and really demand for folks to come in and innovate. Uh, if you look at just structurally how short on supply housing in the United States is and, and what our housing gap looks like, that's a tremendous opportunity for folks of all different, to build companies of all different stripes that attack it. Um, whether it's affordability plays, better uses of space, um, 
uh, modular construction that lowers uh, cost of construction, what have you. Another big, powerful trend line is the institutionalization of the single-family market. Um, and that plays out first in conversion of traditional um, single-family homes owned outright to rental. And now there's an added layer where um, you uh, are seeing uh, folks taking advantage of the ARB in increasingly large institutional ways for conversion to short stay. All of that puts further pressure on the amount of housing that's available for more traditional housing. It also creates a raft of um, financing, insurance, um, property management challenges uh, for folks who are operating in this new category um, of institutional SFR. Um, so we've made a number of bets uh, that play on that trend. And I think there's there's a whole lot more room for innovation there as the category grows. And it's still under about 2% of single family housing stock is, is sitting in institutional hands. So when you think about like why institutional institutions are coming into the SFR market, I, I understand the mom and pop side. It's the only place where uh, mom and pops can get exposure as principals to real estate as an investable asset class. Not many people can go out and buy a multifamily building or start investing in office or retail unless they're sitting on significantly more resources or have the awareness to, to raise capital. Are the, are the yields in SFR that much better than what institutions are seeing in, in office and in multifamily? Is that, is that the attraction point right now? I guess what I'm, I'm still trying to figure out is uh, why does BlackRock like this uh, category so much? Uh, you got to ask folks with, with higher pay grades than my own the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're obviously continuing to pile in, right? Um, you know, you're talking about generation rent. There's a tremendous amount of demand for rental housing. Uh, folks want to live in. Um, all different corners of the, of the country. And uh, I think that the um, uh, the arb that's to be had there from pricing standpoint is uh, is pretty clear and, and stands to run for quite a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting area. I'm um, I'm in the process of bringing our first SFR property online right now. So very different than the institutionalized side, but, but learning. Um, there's a gentleman, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Sam Parr. He, he founded The Hustle. Um, they, they sold to HubSpot uh, last year or so, but, but Sam started a, uh, a Facebook group not even two weeks ago. Um, it's like Sam's SFR community, and he's got to have 12, 1,500 people who have piled in in a week, and I've never seen um, a group with so much activity and like amazing like single family rental properties and like uh, and like corporate retreat style like um, Airbnb stuff. Like I mean, it's just some really cool stuff happening at both the mom and pop and the institutional side of the, the single family rental market. So um, it doesn't surprise me. It's an area where you're seeing some, some momentum on the uh, investable company side. It's true. And fix and flip, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening in that community as well. Uh, you have a whole um, sort of tail to the single family market that most, uh, you know, sort of regular homeowners don't really get a whole lot and home buyers don't get a lot of exposure to. Um but it's uh, they're, they're huge markets and uh, quite uh, inefficient in a lot of ways. With aging housing stock across most of the country, fix and flip doesn't surprise me. But it it is surprising in a market where home price appreciation has been going as fast as as it has been. Um, so uh, let, let's let's jump forward, Zach. So I, I'm a regular follower of the the MetaProp uh, Global Prop Tech Confidence Index, and um, I think our our team at Finn Ledger c covered the index last, last summer and saw that the 
confidence index for investors was eight and eight point nine out of ten, the second highest uh, confidence level ever ever recorded. Startup confidence was high. Fifty four percent of investors expect to make more prop tech investments over the next few months. Uh, great metrics, but I hear that you might have a a, a new report coming out for for end of year, early twenty twenty two. So, would love to get a glimpse into to what we can expect from this upcoming report. Uh, we do. It should be out in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I think, you know, this, this survey taken throughout the end of last year into slight beginning of this one. Um, I think overall sentiment remains, has remained very high. Uh, you know, most folks have taken the view, I think if you read between the numbers, that this market that I think folks looked at initially and said, oh, this is emerging. It could be quite big. Let's see, is it here? Is it here to stay? How long it, how long will it be around? Um, you know, it is clearly coming to its own. And um, you know, the full life cycle um, for company formation through exit of the public market um, has firmly taken root. So uh, folks remain very confident. You can see a big well of companies that continue to be born and are looking for capital, you now have over 215 companies that have raised at least $25 million with a venture funding in the space that's been publicly reported. And um, I can tell you it's much, much more than that if you look behind the scenes. So folks are quite bullish on what's happening, um, not just at the early stages of seed stage funding and ideas that could one day be big, but companies that are clearly doing you know tens of million dollars in revenue growing quite briskly and entering um, IPO pipelines. Um, so folks feel very strongly uh, or very positively, uh, both on the investor and the startup side. You know, the beginning of the year has seen a big correction in the public markets led by uh, the public, mar- public tech companies. Um, and you've seen a big investor sell-off there. And I think that will come and impact not prop tech specifically, but tech overall. And you're already seeing um, a bit of brake pumping happening in the venture world, which after the amount of heat that's been happening in this market over the last couple of years is a very healthy thing. Um, it, in no way, I think, portends doom and gloom. I think it's a, a rationalization and a correction. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of that start to get reflected in these numbers going forward as well. One of the metrics that stood out from the, the mid-year report last year was 91% of founders believed It'll be easier to raise capital during the next twelve months than, than prior. I'd imagine that that break pumping will put a a little bit of a um a little bit of a speed bump on that that confidence index for the for fundraising. Am I accurate there? A little bit, but you know, let's not uh, let's let's not overstate. There's a record amount of capital sitting on the sidelines in terms of dry powder, all the way up and down the private equity chain into venture. Um, you know. It, Venture investors are sitting on um, just a, a tremendous amount of buying power right now. And so, you know, there's a bit of collective action involved here where everybody says, I'm not quite willing to pay the prices I might have been last year. So you get a little bit of valuation correction, but I don't see folks uh, husbanding their resources uh, too closely. One of the things that you do see is that a bunch of the crossover investors uh, from the hedge fund worlds think uh, Code 2, D1, Tiger, most notably, will be pulling back a little bit. Um, a little more sensitive to market whims, and uh, and so that will have an impact on pricing as well because they've been, they've exerted an undue amount of inflationary pressure on pricing in the, in the tech space overall, inclusive of prop tech. Interesting. So we've spent a lot of this conversation kind of focused on the, I, I, I guess for lack of better words, like the bread and 
butter prop tech space, the title, commer- commercial valuation, mortgage technology, SFR management. But you've all, you're also investing a little bit on like the, the bleeding edge of prop tech innovation. Uh, we mentioned Milo earlier, a Miami-based digital lender who's building a, a mortgage product uh, specifically for clients that, if I understand it right, are going to use their their Bitcoin or dig- digital assets um, as as collateral uh, on, on a home purchase. What can you tell us about Milo? And are, are you seeing a lot of innovation in the the crypto meets uh, prop tech meets real estate space? We are. It's an area that we've been studying pretty intently since about 2013 or so, uh, before Metaprop ever really got going uh, formally. Um, and, you know, we have generally taken a, uh, not a cautious, but a, a a view that we were waiting to see some really commercializable tech here. One of the things that's interesting now, while we see a whole lot of net new deals that are at the intersection of crypto and real estate, is that um, we're seeing some of our companies that did not begin with crypto elements begin to move in that direction. And Milo is a really good example of that. So Milo uh, Credit wound up, they started to solve a problem um, for generally non-U.S. consumers who had significant amount of assets, but not U.S.-denominated assets usually, helping them access mortgage financing. So these were folks who were, were cash-rich, um, unable to get traditional mortgages, had to pay uh, very high rates or all cash uh, to access properties. So they really built mm-hmm. um, technology to help underwrite that community and issue US dollar denominated mortgage loans. And what they started to see was that there were an increasing number of folks who had a, a tremendous amount of wealth in crypto, um, but were either having to sell their crypto, incur tax, give up future gain, uh, or otherwise take on unduly high interest rate financing to get a mortgage, even though they were clearly very credit worthy. If you just looked at their um, looked at their profiles, and so what they've developed is the industry's first crypto mortgage, uh, where they don't require you to sell and monetize and give up the future gain um, on your crypto to make a down payment, but they'll issue you a full uh, full loan for the property. And it's seeing a tremendous reception so far. Um, you know, it's a very enthusiastic community, and uh, you know, sta- standing ovation on stage when they announced that one. Yeah, a uh, enthusiastic community, I think, is a is a good uh, <laughs> a good assessment there. Um, so uh, th- th- this announcement kind of came came out at a time um, when Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were seeing one of the one of their many uh, h- high fluctuations in, in in price. And so as this announcement came out, I'm like left with a, a dozen questions about how do you how do you handle volatile collateral? Um, is it, or is additional, uh, collateral called to, to meet the obligation? Is there a risk of a, a capital call? Like I, I don't fully understand the product, but, um, has the, I, I'm sure the team has given thought to how the mortgage holds up as the currency fluctuates for, for better, or for worse. Um, any context you can provide there on, on how we, how this operates when, uh, Price of Bitcoin swings forty percent in one direction or another. Correct. Well, so I'm not. I, I don't think it would be wise for me to give away too many uh, trade secrets, but um, I would say that it's uh, nobody envisioned this product to be a product that only worked when the crypto markets were going up. 
I think if you launched a, a crypto mortgage product with uh, Bitcoin trading around 60 and you didn't expect it to correct at all, uh, you'd be setting yourself up for a pretty rough, uh, rough next board meeting. Um, so but there's much more um, sort of safety and hedge baked into uh, price corrections there, which I think everybody anticipates will continue to go up and down. Okay. So just as a, um, I don't know, any builder or, or mortgage company has a, has a hedging desk, there's a, there's a, a hedging or, or, or staking consideration here to, to make the product viable. Yeah. There's, a, there's ample coverage there. And, you know, they're issuing, it's not a one or two year loan like you would usually be getting uh, if you were looking for a loan against your crypto holdings today, uh, that will need to be continually refined. You're talking about a you know, bona fide 30 year us dollar denominated mortgage. So um, you got, you know, somebody holding that paper on the other side with a lot of confidence. Yeah. Interesting. All right. All right, Zach. So I'm going to wrap the conversation here. And a question I've been asking all of our, our guests to, to wrap the show is if you were not, um, you're, you're a little bit different here. I would say sucked into the housing and mortgage industry, but, I, but I'll, I'll take it differently. If you were not a prop tech investor, where, where would your career take you? What does an alternate universe look like for, for Zach? Uh, if prop tech investing and the, the real estate and housing world was not an option. That's a great question. Um, well, you know, I never, I'm not sure I would have continued in this direction, but before, before I started doing this, um, you know, my, my background was in, uh, international and economic development. Um, it was, uh, neither in technology nor in real estate. I'm fortunate to be surrounded by folks who are deep in both of those areas and have been doing this for about a decade, but, um, you know, that's a world that's still, uh, I find really good for the soul and, and endlessly fascinating and uh, helps tilt the world in hopefully a slightly, uh, slightly more optimistic direction. So I think I'd be uh, potentially doing something in that world. Excellent. Zach, thank you very much for the time today. Housing News audience, thanks for joining us for another episode of Housing News. If you have not signed up yet for next week's virtual 2022 housing market forecast event. We really encourage you to, to go to housingwire.com and check out the, uh, the, the webinars tab underneath knowledge. We have a really cool forecast session led by Sarah Wheeler, our editor in chief, Logan Motoshami, our lead analyst, Selma Hap from CoreLogic, Marina Walsh from the NBA, Jeff Tucker from Zillow, Sadie Gurley from Maxwell. There's gonna be a lot of really cool perspectives here that will help you refine your numbers and your 2022 business plans for, for purchase and refi volume. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.